It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We're getting ready to land now. You can see the wheels of the plane in the shadow that's cast on the river. In June, just before the summer solstice, a small plane took me to America's northern edge. Here we go. I was tagging along with a handful of conservationists and amateur adventurers. After a bumpy ride over the craggy peaks of the Brooks Range, our bush plane landed on a narrow riverbed in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve, known as NPRA. Made it. A vast expanse bigger than the state of Maine, NPR stretches from the mountains to the northernmost edge of the state, to the Arctic Ocean. We pitched our tents beside the river. Okay. I am setting up my tent, which involves lots of stakes because it is extremely windy here. And I cannot have my tent be blowing away. That would be bad. We're on the banks of the Utakak River. The river tastes so good. I just filled up my water bottle. The tundra's most obvious trait was absence. There are no roads, no trails, no service for a mobile phone. You can hear the wind. It is breezy, and the potential for it to be extremely windy is high in the next few days. So the risk is that you go for a little walk and then you come back and your tent isn't there and you don't have any cell phone service. The closest town is a few hundred miles away. Ooh, there's a ladybug. But it was filled with life. There are these beautiful little purple flowers coming out of the riverbed called a vetch, some kind of vetch. I saw the tiny wildflowers that managed to blossom in the Arctic's few weeks of warmth and massive lumbering grizzly bears at closer range than I would have liked. It's too far north for trees, but the river was lined with low thickets of willow. If you're lucky, you'd find a tuft of musk ox fur caught in the branches. The region is most famous for its caribou, Each year, hundreds of thousands of them migrate across the tundra toward the Arctic coast, where they calf, before returning in a thundering procession south in fall. Caribou meat and hides are crucial to Native Alaskans. Along caribou's well-worn trails, you can see small man-made pits where hunters would wait for a passing herd. There are Alaskans who are expert at navigating this landscape. One... I, on the other hand, was an absolute novice. Four, five, six, seven more. Seven more stakes. NBD. 
Here we go. I came to this nook of the Arctic to experience one of the rare corners of Earth that is undeveloped. And as we continue to drill for and use oil, to understand what's at stake. I'm Charlotte Howard, and this is the second of two special episodes of Checks and Balance from The Economist, looking at the future of oil and ice in Alaska. So please go back and listen to episode one if you haven't already. Today, what does our thirst for oil mean for Alaska's ice? Alaska has an obvious imperative to develop its oil. But there's also an obvious imperative not to, as the effects of climate change become ever more clear. Since Joe Biden became president, there's been more action on climate change, notably with the Inflation Reduction Act passed in August. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever, that's going to allow can allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals than the ones we set out when we ran. But the law does nothing to curb the use of oil. And President Biden has actually helped to boost American drilling amid high prices and concerns of energy security. The Biden administration has issued about 75 percent more oil and gas permits than Donald Trump did during the same period of his presidency. Joe Biden is, essentially, trying to limit global warming going forward while still developing the oil the world needs now. It's an imperfect bargain. It is past 10 o'clock. It's very light outside, but this feels as good a time as any is to try to get some sleep. I can hear the Utakak River outside of my tent, as well as the low drone of mosquitoes. But it is, other than that, just completely quiet. There are a sufficient number of bears around here that you have to wear a holster with a canister of bear spray at all times. And when you go to sleep, you're supposed to keep your bear spray right next to you, right next to your sleeping bag, in case. So, I have that all set. I have my sleeping bag, and I'm gonna go to bed. To camp in the Arctic is to be keenly aware of humans' vulnerability, with our poor sense of smell and thin hide, compared with the magnificent animals around you. But in an age of climate change, it's the Arctic itself that has become vulnerable, and the old strategies for protecting nature are no longer sufficient. For years, the environmental movement focused on cordoning off land from development, with some success. In the 19th century, Americans shifted from seeing the country's wild landscape 
not just as something to be conquered, but revered. In 1861, the author Henry David Thoreau wrote that a mountaintop should remain untouched for modesty and for reverence's sake, or if only to suggest that Earth has higher uses than we put her to. Other writers and painters reinforced the idea that nature was worth protecting. Europe had its cathedrals. America had Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. The country's vast landscape, both majestic and forbidding, helped set America apart. In some ways, it was an absurd evolution. European settlers were interested in protecting what they called wilderness and what Native Americans had for millennia simply called home. But over the course of many decades, politicians and conservationists set about protecting American land from development be it through Teddy Roosevelt's National Parks or Lyndon Johnson's signing of the Wilderness Act in 1964. This is a very happy and historic occasion for all who love the great American outdoors, and that, needless to say, includes me. The law, in a way, codified the idea of wilderness as a portal in time, linking Americans now and in future to the past. The Wilderness Bill preserves for our posterity for all time to come, nine million acres of this vast continent in their original and unchanging beauty and wonder. President Johnson spoke of the need to act as guardians of nature for younger generations. We must also leave them a glimpse of the world as God really made it, not just as it looked when we got through with it. The conservation movement would reach its apex in Alaska, where in 1980, Jimmy Carter signed a law protecting 104 million acres. The bill before me now, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, without doubt, is one of the most important pieces of conservation legislation ever passed in this nation. About 50 times the size of Yellowstone National Park. Never before have we seized the opportunity to preserve so much of America's natural and cultural heritage on so grand a scale. In 2022, the battle over how to protect nature looks different. Conservationists continue to campaign against development, but even when they win those fights, the idea that they can protect a piece of land just by cordoning it off seems quaint. In the era of climate change, conservation isn't enough. But if America passed big laws to protect wilderness in the 20th century, in the 21st, it's been slow to take action on climate change. President George W. Bush abandoned the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Protocol was fatally flawed in fundamental ways. Barack Obama ran for president, promising to pass a cap-and-trade bill to restrict emissions. The market will set the price. But unlike the other cap-and-trade proposals that have been offered up in this race so far, no business will be allowed to emit any greenhouse gases for free. But it failed to pass Congress, in part because oil companies lobbied against it. The Inflation Reduction Act now has money to spur the development of green energy. President Biden wants to reduce emissions to half their 2005 levels by 2030. That counts as huge progress. 
The problem is, global warming is already underway. Nowhere in America is that more evident than in Alaska. It was along about the mid-2000s, and in particular 2007, when the ice suddenly took a jump, the ice extent took a jump downwards. John Walsh of the International Arctic Research Center at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks is one of the world's leading sea ice researchers. Fairbanks is in central Alaska. The university is perched on a ridge overlooking a wide valley with the high peak of Denali in the distance. On the day I visited, the summer sun was shining brightly, but the valley was still hazy. Wildfires had been burning for much of the month. I visited John Walsh because the threat of climate change can sometimes feel abstract. Professor Walsh is one of the scientists revealing, in devastating detail, the extent of climate change already underway. Uh, We suddenly were looking at a summer with about 40% less ice than we'd had in any previous year. That really woke up the sea ice community to the the fact that that something was, was going on. As the world warms, it can be hard to know which effects are unprecedented and which are merely unusual, an anomaly unrelated to climate change. So, to understand the effect on sea ice, Walsh and his colleagues worked to assemble records since the 1850s, a combination of satellite data, government meteorological reports, even logs from whaling expeditions, to see if there's any evidence that this has happened before. And the short answer is there, there's not, and the record back to 1850. Professor Walsh and his colleagues found that summer sea ice in the Arctic has shrunk by about 12% a decade since 1979. That's bad news for local wildlife and hunters. But it matters for the rest of us, too, because the melting sea ice that he's tracking has a compounding effect. It's largely because of the, the loss of sea ice and snow cover on land. Uh, that's the, what they call the, the, the albedo feedback. Albedo refers to the reflectivity. When you have reflective material like snow or ice on the ground, a lot of the sunlight that comes in is reflected off the ground. It doesn't go into heating up the, uh, the surface or the air at the surface. Um, the fact that we've lost a lot of sea ice and snow cover on land means that there's a much darker surface that can absorb more solar energy than it used to, and that it's an added boost to the, to the warming that would be occurring from the greenhouse effect alone. Recent research shows that the Arctic's pace of warming over the past 40 years has been nearly four times the global rate. That's worth repeating. The Arctic is warming in quadruple time. That, in turn, has other knock-on effects. One of the most important, not just for Alaska, but the world, is the thawing of the Arctic's permafrost. Permafrost, as its name suggests, is a layer of dirt that is frozen throughout the year. Or at least it's supposed to be. About 85% of Alaska has permafrost beneath the surface, be it hundreds of meters in depth or a slim slice. The trouble is, that permafrost is starting to melt. This thawing can transform common landscapes into surrealist ones, as the ground slumps in surprising places, including right outside John Walsh's office. 
I'm standing behind the International Arctic Research Center, and right next to it is a building that's filled with people who work on geophysics, including some of the world's top permafrost experts. And the parking lot looks like any normal parking lot. It has lines of SUVs that are parked, except for one big swath in the middle that's been roped off with yellow caution tape. And within that roped off area, you basically see some undulating concrete and pits of gravel where there has been a sinkhole. Underneath the parking lot, the ground is sinking because of permafrost thaw. So these top people who are studying permafrost need to drive around this cordoned off area in order to park their cars to get to work on the advanced modeling they're doing inside. But right outside their window, you have this kind of ridiculous display of the problem for Alaskan infrastructure and and the broader problem of permafrost thaw and what that might mean for the rest of us. But in addition to creating local problems for roads and buildings, thawing permafrost poses a big problem for the world. That's because Arctic permafrost contains about 1.6 trillion metric tons of carbon, roughly twice the amount found in the atmosphere. The question for researchers is, as the permafrost thaws, how quickly are those greenhouse gases being released? I have to say, one of the simplest tools for measuring thaw depth is essentially sticking a pole in the ground until you can get to the frozen ground, you know, until you get to the ground that's frozen and you measure that depth. And that's Sue Natali of the Woodwell Climate Research Center is leading a big new research project on permafrost. So we're already seeing regional and local impacts um, of permafrost thaw on the Arctic. And what that looks like is collapsing ground, um, draining lakes, um, impacts on infrastructure and uh, people's uh, way of living and life ways. What that means globally is um, the permafrost stores a lot of carbon, and that carbon right now is in the form of frozen organic matter. Um, when it thaws or as it's thawing, that carbon then can be made available to microbes and microbes break it down and release that carbon then into the atmosphere in the forms of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane. And so what this means is that this place, this Arctic that has been a carbon sink for tens of thousands of years may slowly be shifting to a carbon source. This is a big deal. For a long time, permafrost hasn't been accounted for properly in climate models. As it thaws, it's essentially a giant off-balance sheet liability. And, just as with sea ice, rising temperatures are causing problems that feed on each other. This year, over 3 million acres of Alaska were enveloped in flames. One big issue with wildfire and permafrost regions, the wildfires aren't just burning the trees, or if you're in tundra, the grasses and the shrubs, but it also burns the soil below ground. And this this layer acts as an insulator for the permafrost. So I've been working out at um, a field site in southwest Alaska in the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta, and in the area where I'm working there, there was a wildfire in 2015, and the the depth that the ground is thawing is is double um, in some of the areas that burned than in the areas that weren't weren't burned. 
Sue Natale's work will help illuminate the pace at which permafrost is thawing and the volume of greenhouse gases that are being released. If the precise speed of permafrost thaw is unknown, the way to limit it is clear. Cut emissions dramatically. The question is whether the world will. I'll be back in a moment to hear two very different visions for Alaska's future and to try to chart a course between them. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When we spoke over the summer, Alaska's Republican governor, Mike Dunleavy, was calmer than many about the impacts of climate change. Alaska ends up being a transshipment point for airlines, ends up being a transshipment point for shipping once the Arctic uh, becomes less and less icebound. Where some might see dystopia, Governor Dunleavy sees a few silver linings. As sea ice melts, Alaska may become a shipping hub. Rising tensions with North Korea and Russia and China reinforce Alaska's strategic military role. He views himself as a realist and sees those who oppose drilling in Alaska as hypocrites. People outside the state of Alaska have developed this view of Alaska as somehow a Shangri-La, a nirvana in which people are despoiling it. And by God, when the old lady in a rocking chair donates 20 bucks to the Wilderness Society in Delaware because she doesn't want that great Alaska to become Delaware, Something of a contradiction and hypocrisy, and she wants those old Eskimo people to live like they used to. Go talk to my mother-in-law, who's deceased now. I asked her that question one time. I said, Mom, who could barely speak English. She was an Inupac speaker. I said, Mom, what were the good old days like? She rattled off the father that was killed by a bear, relatives that died of the flu, other folks that fell through the ice, people that died of infections. She really liked her hospitals, and she really liked airplanes, and she really liked snowmobiles. She really liked everything that we like. So there's this soft, to some degree, soft, unintentional racism that exists that we're going to save Alaska from the intruder so that the Native people can live the life they used to. I don't think they want to go back to living in sod houses. And he's right to point to some hypocrisy among the critics of drilling. There's obvious dissonance in blue state voters deriding Alaskan oil while driving around in their Denali SUVs, or indeed a reporter, me, writing of climate risks while crisscrossing Alaska by plane. But it's also right to point out that climate change is a real threat now. Climate change is having a tangible impact on sea ice and on permafrost shore, but also on people. Wildfires are devastating parts of Alaska, not previously deemed at risk. 
a big typhoon battered Alaska's western coast this autumn. And native villages threatened by climate change are beginning the hard work of relocation, some with new money from the federal government. Vague talk of saving the planet misses the point. It's sort of like dinosaurs worrying about the future of Earth without realizing that they, not the planet, were at risk. Coffee's ready. I gotta wash my hands. Back at the gravel bed campsite in the Alaskan Arctic, it's breakfast time for me and my campmates. One of them is Peter Windsor. So how did you get from Sweden here? What happened in the interim? Wow, that's a big question. I know. <laughs> that's a long, windy road. Yeah, no, I... Um... Windsor's hobbies are not like yours, or at least not like mine. Hunting for caribou in the wilderness at sub-freezing temperatures, scaling mountains of ice. He told me that if I ever were to slash my face with an ice axe, he advises sealing it with crazy glue. But he's also a serious climate scientist. His career included the study of ice in the Arctic and Antarctic. Windsor now leads the Alaska Wilderness League. Among other things, it campaigns against oil drilling in the state, including ConocoPhillips' big new project in NPRA called Willow. What do you say to an oil company? Why not drill here if one has to drill somewhere? We usually say a couple of things, and it's not the royal we. <laughs> it's, it, it's basically every scientist and every uh, person that we work with and every indigenous person that we work with uh, in uh, the refuge or here in MPRA uh, that are concerned about this environment being so sensitive and being uh, also the basically remaining wilderness we have in the U.S. that's intact and continuous on large scale. And yeah, people might say that, well, if we cut out the corner here and a little bit over here, it won't, won't matter because you have a lot of space up here. And the very valid counter argument to that is that uh, climate change up here is happening three or four times faster than anywhere else in the world. We're heating up now here in Alaska about four times faster than anywhere else in the world. And these ecosystems are trying to adapt and build a resilience to those very dramatic changes. And any development on top of that is a stress that will probably put these ecosystems over a tipping point. Whether the pace of climate change can be reined in depends on big new programs, like the rollout of President Biden's climate policies, but also on thousands of smaller decisions, such as whether to allow Willow, ConocoPhillips' proposed new oil project. Willow is in NPRA, northeast of where I was camping. And these questions of whether to drill, how to protect Arctic wildlife, how to protect the permafrost and limit climate change— are layered on top of each other, quite literally. So beneath the hummocks and the tussocks, beneath the active layer of soil that's thawing and freezing, beneath the meters and meters of permafrost, this big carbon sink, beneath all that is oil. And that's what Conoco wants to develop and what the world currently needs to fuel its economy. And there are people with me camping here who argue that the last place you should be developing oil is in this ecosystem. 
because it's so fragile, because it's unique in the world in its vastness and the degree to which it's untouched. Conoco says its drilling can have minimal impact on the environment. For instance, a drill can stretch not just down, but miles sideways, reaching a wider reservoir from one point on the surface. But Willow, if built, would not be a dot on the landscape. Conoco wants five drill sites, an airstrip, a facility to process crude, 506 kilometers of pipeline, 60 kilometers of gravel roads, a mine to supply that gravel, and seven bridges. This will have an effect on the tundra itself. It will also have an effect on climate change. The Bureau of Land Management's review of the project notes that the government has not set specific thresholds for greenhouse gas emissions. And while a single project of this size cannot significantly impact global greenhouse gas emissions, all projects may cumulatively have a significant impact on global climate change. To me, that dull, bureaucratic sentence summarizes the global tragedy of collective action. It's true that no single oil project is enough to ensure climate catastrophe on a global scale. It's together, however, that they have a devastating impact. Many expect the federal government to approve Willow soon, despite the best efforts of Peter Windsor and other opponents. Alaska's North Slope is now cloaked in midwinter darkness. Conoco wants to use the early, cold months of 2023 to build ice roads across the tundra to carry heavy equipment to drill sites. Back home in New York, I've been thinking about that speech that Barack Obama made in Kotzebue in northwestern Alaska in 2015, when he described the impact of rising temperatures. You've got longer, more dangerous fire seasons in Alaska, thawing permafrost that threatens homes and infrastructure, faster glacier melt, rising seas, melting sea ice that contributes to some of the fastest coastal erosion in the world. Climate change is happening. We didn't act soon enough to stop it. There's been no American policy explicitly designed to limit demand for oil. No carbon tax, no cap-and-trade bill to curb emissions. So demand for oil remains, and oil projects such as Willow progress. That's a reminder of just how urgent it is to take bolder action now. I'm here to tell you we got to do more. we got to move faster. We're not moving fast enough. And for the sake of our kids, we've got to keep going. Alaska has been the site of remarkable feats. Drilling for crude in one of the world's most bitter environments, building a pipeline to carry oil over 1,300 kilometers of frigid land. Now America has to do something even more dramatic. Build more wind turbines and more solar farms, develop better nuclear plants, capture carbon and deploy cleaner cars, all at unprecedented scale and speed. Seven years after President Obama spoke in Kotzebue, the need to act is even more urgent. Arctic ice is melting. In the ocean and below the tundra, the costs of depending on oil are clear. The world must do more, faster, to move away from it.
This episode was written by me and produced by Harriet Noble. Nicola Raufast did the sound design and mixing. John Shields is our executive producer. Thank you to Milton Vargas for his transcription help and Daniela Raz for her voiceover work. You can read the accompanying print piece to this series called Land, Oil, and Ice if you have an Economist subscription. Go to economist.com slash uspod for the best offer. I'd love to know what you've thought of this mini-series on Alaska, so please do get in touch. The email address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Happy New Year, and we'll see you in 2023.